We're looking at the test of faith. And if you've noticed over the past several weeks, we've looked at character after character in Hebrews chapter 11, and it's gone by pretty fast as far as uh, this character is mentioned for one verse, this character is mentioned for one verse, uh, this person's mentioned for one or two verses. But we kind of stop with this character Abraham. And for the past several weeks, we've been looking at different facets of Abraham's life as the author of Hebrews presents him to us and his example of faith. A couple weeks ago, two weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Abraham was willing to forsake everything that he had to follow the call of God. That by faith, he went to a land that was unknown. And then last week we saw another aspect of faith is not only exercised in Abraham, but also his wife Sarah. That by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. And we saw in verse 12 that because of their faith, their response to God's promises, that from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. If you remember last week, we talked about the fact that all of God's promises to Abraham were wrapped up in the promise of a son. Because without a son, there could be no nations. Without a son, Abraham could not be the the father of a nation. Without a son, there would be no nation to have a land. It all focused upon a son. And then we get to verses 17 to 19. And we see that Abraham is given a test concerning what? The son. How many of you, whether you are currently in high school or elementary, or you are 85 looking back at your school days, how many of you enjoyed taking tests? Okay, we have, we have a few. How many of you dreaded taking tests? Okay, probably the majority. How many of you were indifferent? <laughs> Why do I see so many current students raising their hand? (laughs) I remember in my school days getting very stressed out regarding certain tests that I had to take. I already told you the story about my freshman history of civilization class where the professor with the deep low voice would always say, this too shall pass. My worst grade I ever got in that class was like a, a 40%. And, 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 guess, and that was uh, covering World War II. Before you judge me on that, I had a, the guy that wrote the tests was different than the lecturer, and I had the guy that wrote the tests. And... Um, we had a lecture class, and this, this class was characteristically known in the school to be so hard. We had a lecture class, and then we, we had to sign up for a second, almost like a tutoring class. And I happened to have the guy that wrote the tests, and the guy was like a mad scientist. 
And it was not a matter of memorizing, okay, what general did this, A, B, C, and you just memorize facts. No, he said it's not enough to memorize facts. He said students memorize facts all the time, but the way that we write the tests, they fail. And he seemed to have enjoyment in that. (laughs) No, you had to know the philosophy behind the answers in order to do well. So there's my, my story. And it wasn't, this has, I don't know why I'm wasting time with that. But I stressed out over tests throughout my high school, college, seminary days. The reason that I generally was so stressed out, however, was because I desired to perform well. Usually, those that don't stress out over tests don't really care that much if they do well. Well, you know, there wasn't the, the, the desire to perform well was a good thing. But when that reaches perfectionism, that, of course, is not a good thing. But when we think of human man-made tests, they differ greatly from God's tests. Because God also tests His children. They're much different than man-made tests. I just want to to show you a few ways that God's tests are much different than man-made tests. One specific example of this is that God's tests are just as much about what we do not know as what we do know. In fact, the focus of God's tests are concern what we do not know. As, as humans and as institutions, schools, colleges, etc., they test based upon to gauge what you know. God gives tests to reveal to you what you do not know. Very different. A second difference is that God's tests are to be rejoiced in even before they are over. Usually, celebration happens when a test is done. Ah, midterms are over. Finals are over. I can enjoy Christmas break. I can enjoy my summer. But God's tests are to be rejoiced in before they are over. For instance, James 1, 2-4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. A third difference is that God's tests reveal not simply what is in your mind, but what is in your heart. And we're going to be focusing on that this morning. A fourth difference is that unlike many human tests, God never grades on a curve. Did you ever have that smart student that would mess up the curve? In my college days, I took a class astronomy thinking that I'd get an easy elective. And the man was uh, so smart, he, he didn't teach well. Rachel had him as well. Um, and he used to take us into the planetarium, and uh, we had a planetarium at the college, and he would 
take his laser pointer and say, what's this constellation and what's this one and, and this one? And then he'd turn the lights on. He'd have to remember and write them down that the test was, was uh, uh, so difficult. And he would always grade on a curve. And in fact, you could go up to him and argue your logic, even though you knew your answer was dead wrong and he'd give you points. <laughs> but God doesn't do that. But you know what God does grade on? He grades on the merits of Christ. You see, God's standards never change to pass His tests. But because Jesus perfectly passed that test for us, He is able to take us in all of our failings and to bring us to Himself through the merits of what Jesus has done. Amen? A final difference, just by way of opening this morning, is that unlike human tests, God's tests have a guaranteed outcome to those that are in Christ. God's tests are always meant to refine us to be more like Christ, and and He will, at the end of the day, complete His objectives in our lives. We can be feeling like we are failing miserable in the tests that God has placed before us, but as we are clinging to Christ and we are saying, like what James says, that we are going to let that steadfastness have its working in our hearts, even though we are failing and not responding properly all the time, if we are continuing to follow Him, we can be guaranteed of the outcome of the tests. These are all very encouraging. And in our passage this morning, we are going to see that what is central to God's tests is this thing of faith. Today we are going to see that God's tests are both a revealer of our faith and they are an enabler to greater faith. So God is testing us not just to say, okay, let's see how much they have learned, but He is saying, I am going to test them so that they can learn. Their faith can be enabled in greater ways. This morning we're going to look at two aspects of God's tests of faith that directly impact our lives Why? Because we have to realize that a faith that testifies, a faith that truly gives witness to those around us is always a faith in action. It is not a dormant faith or a hidden faith, a secret faith. It is an active faith. This morning we are going to look at the test of faith in that God's tests are a test of our devotion, And they are a test of our dependency. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the tests that you bring into our lives, Father, you're not calling us like you called Abraham to go up on a mountain and to physically sacrifice one of our children. But Lord, every day of our lives, you're calling us to look to You. 
You're calling us to offer what is most special, what we hold dearest, to offer that to You. God, to go beyond our own thinking and our own understanding, to heed Your call in our life. Father, I pray that we, as we look at the Christmas season and we see, Father, that You just don't give out the tests and call us to things that You Yourself have not perfectly fulfilled on our behalf. And Lord, we thank You for that. And I pray, Lord, that You would grip our hearts with the reality of the Gospel this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Abraham's test was first of all a test of devotion. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 17. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was, even, was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. What we have to realize in the tests of devotion that God allows into our lives and the test of devotion that God gave Abraham so many years ago is that this test of devotion was one of, of heart discovery. Heart discovery. Now remember, God knows what is in the heart of men. God holds the hearts of kings in His hand and can turn them whichever way He will. God knows men's hearts. But God also wants to circumstantially reveal the contents of the heart in an an experiential way. And that is for our benefit. Because God doesn't work in theory. No, God works in practice. God knew what was in Abraham's heart, but He wanted to reveal it experientially. Not only to testify to God Himself, but to testify to Abraham Himself. What was in the heart so we see that God tested Abraham. If you put, uh, turn to Genesis 22, just put a little marker there. We're going to be flipping back and forth. Genesis 22 is where Dave read this morning the story of Abraham offering his son. Notice verse 1 says, After these things God tested Abraham. So the, this testing is emphasized not only in Hebrews 11.17, but also in Genesis 22.1, that this was indeed a test by God. This word test has the idea of endeavoring to discover the nature or character of something. So, the nature or character of something is revealed through this test. 
Now, we've already talked about some different ways that man, mankind's tests that we undergo, whether it's a written test or an observational test or whatever it is, how they differ from God's tests. But I just want to give you a few more key points that we have to realize regarding God's testing. First of all, God's testing is meant to reveal and to conform. It is meant to reveal and to conform. Throughout the Bible, we see this. For instance, Exodus 20.20 says, Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. This was when the people had need in the wilderness. God was testing them to see if they would truly rely upon Him or if they would continue to murmur, to complain, to rebel. This was meant to reveal what was in the heart, but not just reveal. God just doesn't reveal to us all the bad stuff within our heart. No, God takes the mess And he says, I already knew what was in your heart. Now you know what's in your heart too. Now I am going to work to transform that. That's what God does. If we but respond to His call. Revelation 2, talking to one of the churches. Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Through that testing, their hearts would be revealed, refined, and conformed. And the same is true for us. A second key point we have to realize is that God does not exempt His servants from testing. It's easy to think, okay, because I'm following Jesus, because I'm, I'm, doing the, um, I'm following the calling He has given me, I'm seeking to, to live a life as a, a disciple of Christ. Why is He allowing these things in my life? And we can so easily get off track with this wrong mentality. But the Scriptures testify once again from Genesis to Revelation that God does not somehow exempt His people from hardship, from testing. Jesus Himself, it says when Jesus Himself, Matthew 4.1, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Hebrews 2.18, the very book that we are studying, it says, for because He Himself has, uh, has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. If Jesus Himself was not exempt from testing and trial, how can we think we should be? Number three, As we've already seen this morning in James chapter 1, God's people can rejoice in their testing. Not rejoice in the tests per se, but rejoice in their testing. There's a world of difference there. Knowing what God is is ultimately seeking to accomplish to make us more like Christ, to make us complete, perfect, lacking nothing, 
We can rejoice in that even before it comes. And then a a final note to realize regarding God's testing is that God will never abandon, nor will He ever entice us to sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no temptation has overtaken us, but such that is common to man. But God is faithful, and He will not allow you to be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape. James 1.13 and 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Each person is tempted when he is lured away and enticed by his own desires, his own lusts. You see, God may allow difficulty into our life. God may allow testing in our life, but that testing is to accomplish the good. Now, because we have the old uh, flesh, we still battle the old flesh of, of, of our former days before we were saved, we still battle with that in our heart. Guess what? In the testing often comes temptation. But that temptation is not from God. And God promises to never abandon. He is faithful. He will not allow us to somehow be left alone. To sink. So we have to realize that God tested Abraham and God likewise allows us to go through testing. But I also want in this this heart discovery that God accomplishes in the life of Abraham, not only do, do we just realize in general that Abraham was tested and so were we, but what was the dynamic of that testing? The dynamic was that God tested Abraham with what was most precious. It's not much of a test for Abraham to say, or for God to say to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to go up on the mountain and I want you to offer your most beloved servant. I want you to offer that best sheep that you have, that best lamb that you have. I want you to offer some of your cattle. No, when you look at Genesis 22, what does he say? Verse 2 says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. God tested Abraham with what was most precious. It's it's amazing to see, first of all, in verse 1, that God calls out to Abraham, and what is Abraham's response? Here I am. Abraham was being a faithful, loyal servant to God. Here I am, Lord. What do you desire? We read that phrase, here I am, uh, in many parts of the Old Testament. We read of Samuel saying, uh, here I am, and he thinks Eli's calling. 
We read of of Isaiah who has a heavenly vision of God on the throne and the cherubim singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God says, who will go for us? What What does Isaiah say? Here I am. We have the picture of a an obedient servant of God. But then you get to verse 2. And you see this loyalty and this obedience being questioned. I mean, maybe this is the first time you've ever read this story. Um, sometimes we can get so familiar with stories that we don't We don't really think about what's going on here, but in verse 2, all of a sudden you're presented with this dilemma and you're thinking, what is going to happen? Do you see the description of verse 2? It is almost as if God is, is rubbing in to Abraham just how special Isaac is. He doesn't say, why don't you go take Isaac and I want you to offer him up. No, look at how he describes him. Take your son. After all these years of waiting, saying, I will give you offspring. I will give you a son. In fact, as we read when Sarah laughed, he says, at this time next year, I'm going to come and visit you. This was very specific. And now he says, take your son. And he doesn't stop there. He further, further emphasizes the uniqueness and special character of Isaac. Not only your son, your only son, Isaac. He didn't have two or three that, hey, I can depend on number two, number three to carry out God's promises. And he doesn't just stop there. He says, whom you love. Your beloved son. You see the emphasis here. It's, it literally could read, take your son, your only son, um, take your son, your only son, who is Isaac. A three-part description here. Your son Gets deeper. Your only son gets real specific. Yeah, I'm not talking about the servant. I'm talking about Isaac. And then he encapsulates everything, all of that description together. The one you love. The one who's beloved. Notice verse 12. When Abraham passes this test, At the end of verse 12, he says, you have not withheld, and again, we have that wordage, your son, your only son from me. Do you get the idea that the text is trying to prove a point? Not only is God, and here's the contrast, God's real specific with Isaac. I mean, describes him on three different tiers, And then he encapsulates everything by saying, yeah, the one that you love. He gets real specific, but then he he gets to the command. And the command is, is somewhat specific in saying, 
I want you to offer him as a burnt offering, but then it's also vague. It says, on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. Can you see all of the the emotion that Abraham could have thought in his mind and probably did think in his mind of, yeah, God, you want to be real specific and say I got to kill my only son, Isaac, my beloved son. But then when you give me the command to just offer him as a burnt offering on one of these mountains you're going to tell me about. Sounds similar to to what God told Abraham when he was called to forsake everything. Go to a land which I will tell you. You see, Abraham was presented with a choice. A choice of obedience or disobedience. Of trust or of lack of trust. And we see in verse 3, Abraham's response. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. God was testing Abraham's heart. This was a test of devotion. What would Abraham hold greater? His trust in God or his trust and his enjoyment of his son? In other words, and this is a question that we need to ask all of, all of ourselves, each of one of us. Would Abraham worship? Will we worship the gift or the gift giver? Which one are you worshiping this morning? Are you worshiping the gift or the gift giver? Let me tell you, if you are up all night and you are, and, and you are obsessed with your kids and whether they know enough and whether they are getting enough and whether you are doing the perfect job raising them and whether, and whether you are providing the way for their career path and whether you, you, you or your kids, 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 guess what? You are worshiping the gift instead of the gift giver. If you are obsessed with your work and how much money and all of these things, guess what? You are worshiping the abilities and gifts that God has given you above the gift giver. If, if in your mind it's how, how accepted am I, what do people think of me, this, that, am I going to ever get married? Is this ever going to take place? Am I ever going to have kids? You are worshiping either the gifts or potential gifts that God would give above the gift giver. And this is something that God confronts His children with all of the time because it is one of the root heart issues that we struggle with and guess what that is it is idolatry God's people have always struggled with idolatry Eve struggled with it that she was not content 
to be a representative of God, to bear God's image on this earth. She wanted to be a God, and she idolized that idea, and she ate of the fruit, and then Adam did. The children of Israel, instead of being God's special people and being a light to the nations, they wanted to conform themselves to the nations and they fell into worshiping idols. And it's no less true today. We worship the gifts. We worship other things. And our heart, as uh, the reformer said, our heart is an idol-making factory. You see, Abraham was given a choice. You see, not only in God's tests of devotion, not only in this test of devotion is it a test of discovery, heart discovery. What does your heart truly worship? But God's tests of devotion involve heart exercise. Are we going to enact, to act upon what we claim to worship? It's easy to sing the songs on Sunday morning, but man, when we go to work Monday, are we still worshiping Him in the way we live, in the way we represent Him, in the way that we are, are, are living as a child of God in the place that He has put us? This was a call to heart exercise to respond to the call. Verse 17 of Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. We see action here. You see, Abraham was to offer up Isaac, verses 4 to 14 show us. This is true in light of the fact that it was Abraham who had received God's special promises regarding this very son. Genesis 12, 2. Promises. God says, I will make you a great nation. Genesis 13, 15, Genesis 15, 4 to 5, Genesis 17, 5 to 6. These are all promises that God would make a mighty nation. He would give Abraham offspring. He repeats and repeats and repeats this promise. And once he finally has a son, he's called to exercise his faith. I mean, the promise gets from broad to very specific, and we see Isaac very specifically given as a recipient, as an answer to this promise in places like Genesis 17, 16. And 18, 10. And 21, 12. We don't have time to read all of these. And here's the interesting thing in the story of Abraham and Isaac, in, the very, in a very interesting thing in the story of our Christian journey. For Abraham and Isaac, we read and we see that Sarah did indeed 
give birth to Isaac. You see, to a certain degree, Abraham's faith was now sight, at least partially. It's not that God fully accomplished the promises for Abraham. He had but one son. But now there was at least partial sight and evidence that if God did this, he must definitely uh, promise and guarantee to do the remainder of that promise that from my one son Isaac is going to come multitudes of people. His faith was now partially sight. Yet, at God's new command that we see here to offer up Isaac, his sight was now faith again. His sight went to being unseen. This is so similar in our Christian life. You see, we see the evidence of what God has done and is doing in our Christian life. But because there are ups and downs and there are mountains and valleys, that faith gets brighter at times and dimmer at times. And we struggle with that. Paul very clearly says in Corinthians that faith is that which we walk by faith, not by sight. Hebrews 11 verse 1 talks about faith is the evidence of those things that are not seen. But because God has, has given us pro promises that lead to that ultimate promise, we do have some sight but man, we still struggle with that majority of sight that's yet unseen. I like what one theologian says, the promises then must be secured through Isaac. And yet God demanded that Abraham sacrifice him. If the readers are doubting God, if their circumstances make them wonder if they will receive the final reward, the author reminds them of Abraham's situation. It seemed as if God were contradicting and nullifying his own promises. When it comes right down to it, that is the bottom line. Isn't that the, the struggle we have so many times? God, you say you're good, but you allowed this. God, you, you say you're going to be faithful to me, but I don't sense your presence. And we are constantly questioning God. But what we also see is that God it acts when the test was complete. Look at Genesis 22.4. Uh, or verse 5, it says, So Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship, and notice this phrase, and come again to you. There is his act of faith. He tells his servants, Stay here, we're going to go worship God, and then we're going to come back. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took his, uh, in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both went together. And, and man, get this. And, and notice the, the intimate family language that's used here. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My 
father. Imagine how that would have cut to Abraham's heart. My father. And then Abraham's response. Here I am, my son. That familial language. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? You notice as kids start to get older, from when they were younger, their questions become much more logical, and, 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 and you start to engage your, your children in an in, in adult-like conversation, whereas before, it's kind of just toddler to, to parent, and sometimes you kind of are shocked by the questions they ask. This is a very logical question for this young, probably preteen or teen Isaac. Verse 9, when they came to the place, or excuse me, verse 8, Abraham said, and again, look at evidence of faith number 2, this was heart exercise. God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, laid the wood in order. Talk about the longest building project. And bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on top of the altar, or on the altar on top of the wood. Can you imagine that scene? Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now listen, this is evidence that in verse 8, Abraham, when he says God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son, that Abraham did not have in his mind that somehow this little sheep was going to be caught in a thicket. He had in his mind, I am going to this mountain to kill my son. That's why you see that if he was thinking that a lamb was going to somehow show up, he would not have been binding his son and doing all of this so methodically. Reaching out his hand, literally extending his hand, taking the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham... Abraham, and he said, you notice this repetition of this phrase in the story? Here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Folks, what are you withholding from God this morning? That desire, that person, that relationship, that possession, that idol, what are you withholding from Him? Because if you continue to withhold that, verses 13 and 14 and following will never become a reality in your life. 
Because Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went, took the ram, offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is to this day on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided." Could it be that the reason that you feel you serve a distant God, the reason that you feel that God is not faithful, the reason that you live a a lazy, apathetic Christian life is because you are not giving that which is most precious to you, enabling God to fully work in your life. Because the only way to experientially, not just with the head knowledge and with a pastor preaching it or a Sunday school teacher telling you it, God provides. You are not experientially realizing God provides. Because you are too busy hoarding. God can't fill your arms unless they're extended and unless they are empty. And not only does he provide, but as the rest of that passage says, he reiterates the promises that he had given him so many times. You see, when did God act? When the test was completed. We see back in Hebrews chapter 11 the commentary on this story. He was literally in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. That very child he was willing to offer. But God provided You see, this is a test of devotion. But very quickly and finally, number two, this test of faith not only involved devotion, but it involved dependency. You see, you and I must realize that we are completely dependent on the test giver. What kind of faith did Abraham exercise? He exercised a faith of dependency, not on the circumstances, not on his own reasoning and logic, but on the character of God. You see, the text shows us that Abraham, even though the Bible, the purpose of Genesis is to record Abraham's obedience to God's command. I mean, the, the, the Bible would be an endless book if it gave all the details of everything and, and went through all the emotional turmoil that, that Abraham and other individuals in the Bible experienced. But the, but the Scriptures do make clear that Abraham pondered what God was asking of him. In fact, look at verse 19 of Hebrews 11. He considered. 
He considered. This word has the idea to give careful thought to a matter. Talk about a sleepless night. He considered what God was asking. And here's where the rubber meets the road. In considering what God was asking, he came to a conclusion concerning God, not Isaac. You see, the text here in verse 19 says he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. When we look at Genesis 22 and verse 5, we read the facts that Abraham says to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And again, Hebrews giving us the divine commentary on what's going on in light of, of, of the truth we now have in Christ, Abraham was exercising a faith in the fullness and sufficiency of God and His plan. That God would even raise His one and only Son, if need be. In considering and in exercising this faith, this devotion to God above even his only son that was most precious to him, he doesn't say, now let me ponder my son. Let me ponder if I should really obey God and give him up and sacrifice him. He's so special to me, I only have one, this, that. No, his faith was not placed in the son. His faith was placed in God. Abraham knew that God would not violate his own character. And just as he was looking to a greater city that was to come, so he was looking to a greater reality, one that pointed to a resurrection from the dead. Are you this morning focusing your attention, your difficulties, your trials that God is allowing you to go through? Are you focusing on the situation? Are you focusing on the gift? Or are you focusing on the character and sufficiency of God? You see, God answered his act of faith. He answered his prayer. The end of verse 19 says that he figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, what he's saying is Abraham uh, exercises this faith that God would even raise his son from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he was raised from the dead in the sense that God said, I am going to present a substitute. I know now that you do not hold the gift 
above the gift giver. And here is the gift back. Could it be that God is asking you to give that gift, to dedicate that gift to Him? And while while maybe He would give that gift back, maybe He won't, the fact is that God gives so much more than what He ever asked for. He gives so much more than what he, He asked for. He asks for our burdens, those things that we so often worry about. And in our giving them to Him, He gives us peace. He asks for our devotion. And as we give Him that, He gives us more of Himself. He asks for us to give Him our mess. And in that mess, He creates beauty. He asks for us to give Him our life. And He takes that life and He makes it something beautiful and something eternal. He asks for our fickleness. He gives us His steadfastness. He asks for our brokenness. And he gives us his promises to mend, to recreate. That's the God we serve. But because we are so busy holding tight, we worship those little, like a four-year-old toddler glues together a mess of a craft. We look at that And we gaze upon it and we think, oh, that is so great. As if only this just remains like it is and no one touches it and I can just be safe and comfortable. God offers so much more. He gives so much more than what he asks for. But we must ask him to complete His promises in us, not simply our wishes. Abraham could have very easily just wished this away and said, no, I'm not going to obey. I have this special son. But he was more concerned with following his Lord in the plan that his Lord had And thirdly, we must be willing to act out of our faith. It's not enough to say we have it. It's not enough to tell others to have faith. We ourselves have to exercise our own faith. So as we conclude today, the hour is spent. Are you loving the gift or the gift giver? Are you content to live a life that claims faith and claims to be a Christian 
and serves God where comfortable, or are you willing to step out in faith and actually see God work in your life? You see, a faith that testifies is a faith in action. Let's pray.